All right, let's jump in. So welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Daria Hall. I'm a vice president in the DC office of Fenton Communications. And we are strategists for social change, working with foundations, nonprofits, and brands, taking on some of the world's toughest challenges. And we are passionate voter and election protection advocates. This breakout session is Freedom or Death, the largest labor rebellion in US history, political performance, and the power of storytelling. Fenton was invited to join the Slave Rebellion reenactment team to provide earned media and digital strategy and support about three months ahead of the performance. And it was truly a project unlike anything I've ever seen or worked on. Check out this video by The Guardian. Dred's gonna help us out. The state of Louisiana has memorialized the largest rebellion of enslaved people in U.S. history with a, a road sign. I'm glad that there is a sign that marks it, but I also think that to mark this most magnificent event with a sign in a, a traffic island, you know, by the side of a, a highway, that's crazy. Other people have tried to sort of mark this event, often focusing on the brutality and the suppression of, of the rebellion and what I'm interested in is, is the, the, the liberatory aspects of the people who were fighting to free themselves. For me, being from born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, my whole experience in Louisiana has been learning more about my roots and about my, my family's experience before me, my ancestors. So just getting this opportunity here is really powerful for me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a heavy equipment operator for the city and uh, I also work at many city carriages in the evening and I ride horses. <laughs> That's the, story of my life. <laughs> this is going to be the most information I've ever had from the other end of it, you know what I'm saying? Because they teach you what they want you to know in history right. and school. So. Know this. Yeah, I ain't know anything. I, I was interested in horses, and if I knew there were black people riding horses in the 1800s, I would have probably been a little bit more intrigued by it than what I actually was, being that I only knew black people were slaves in the 1800s, as far as the books that I read, you know what I'm saying? This is a, a, a new way in for people to look at this history and to say, well, here's what's really been suppressed and something that should be celebrated. This is something that people should be truly proud of. It could have changed US and world history. Imagine if there were an African Republic in modern day Louisiana, but before westward expansion has really happened. So does Texas secede from Mexico? Does Los Angeles become part of California? Would enslaved people all over the rest of the lower south have decided, well, oh, we should rebel or escape there? So it is, you know, a hugely significant event in U.S. history, and that history has been buried. Thank you so much. So, uh, with that visual, here is the, the sort of the full backstory. 
Slave Rebellion Reenactment was a community-engaged artist performance and film production that reimagined the German Coast Uprising of 1811, which took place in the River Parish just outside of uh, New Orleans. It was envisioned and organized by artist Red Scott, who you'll hear from a little later, and documented by filmmaker John Acomfra. Slave Rebellion Reenactment, or SRR, animated a suppressed history of people with an audacious plan to organize and seize Orleans territory, to fight not just for their own emancipation, but to end slavery. And it is at its core, a project about freedom. So picture this, on November 8th and 9th, 2019, hundreds of reenactors retraced the path of the largest rebellion of enslaved people in the US, embodying a story of resistance, freedom, and revolutionary action. The artwork involved marching for two days, covering 26 miles. It was an impressive and startling sight. Hundreds of black reenactors, many on horses, flags flying in 19th century French colonial garments, singing in Creole and English to African drumming. It was truly a sight to see. A key element of the slave revolts was the organizing of the uprising by small groups of trusted individuals on different plantations. In order to mirror this structure from the original rebellion, SRR actually initiated several recruitment and organizing meetings of multiple small groupings to prepare for the reenactment. Extending the artwork's performance reenactment of history, the meetings took the form of conversations. So people talked about, you know, why they chose to participate, how others might get involved, and why this history is important in contemporary society. The self-organization of the reenactors was an essential part of the artwork. It was actually through these meetings and gatherings that history was shared, truths were revealed, and questions were surfaced. There was limited fighting during the 1811 rebellion. So in contrast to many war reenactments, much of SRR was a procession with only occasional skirmishes. The procession was jarringly out of place since communities and strip malls and oil refineries replaced the sugar plantations of the 1800s. This historic anomaly formed a cognitive dissonance for viewers, opening space for people to really start to rethink long-held assumptions. Charles DeLong's Gilbert, Kwamana, Jessamine, and Marie Rose are some of the leaders of the 1811 up uprising. Yes, we actually know some of their names. Uh, and they were joined by other enslaved people who were part of this revolt. These are our unsung heroes, right? Their rebellion is a profound what-if story. What if they had succeeded? What would that have meant for US and world history? SRR builds on Dred Scott's performance, uh, the Dred Scott Decision of 2012, which was on view at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Where that performance looked at American democracy's foundation in slavery, SRR shifted focus from the roots of America to the strivings of people fighting to be free of those roots. An army from the past forged of descendants of enslaved Africans colliding with the present. The reverberations were felt by audiences and reenactors alike. Take a listen.
All right, so the original rebellion actually never made it to New Orleans because many of the revolutionaries were killed before they could reach their destination. But the reenactment shows a different ending with the rebellion ending in celebration in Congo Square, a location instrumental for preserving African culture in America, transforming the violent suppression of the freedom fighters some 208 years ago into a celebration of their achievement. This work was supported by dozens of foundations, including the Certain Foundation, and opened the possibility for participants and audience members alike to imagine freedom both then and now. Called Daring by the New York Times for its scale and its production, there is power in this story which can help to shift narratives that have distorted or hidden the truth for centuries. All right, so today we are here to dig into the overarching question, what does the reenactment of the slave rebellion mean today? To get into this, I am joined by my wonderful panel, including Dred Scott, the visionary behind slave rebellion reenactment and an American artist whose works, often participatory in nature, focuses on the lived experiences of African-Americans in the contemporary US. Shana Griffin, assistant producer of SRR and currently the associate director at Antana, a New Orleans-based arts organization and an SRR partner. And finally, we're joined by F. Javier Torres Campos, Director of Thriving Cultures at the Certain Foundation, a funder of SRR. Together, this group will unpack the storytelling behind this art project, the good and the bad, the obstacles and the achievements. And if you have questions along the way, we invite you to drop them into the Q&A box uh, in Zoom. We will save some time at the end to go through as many as we can. So with that backstory uh, I shared, let's dig in. Dred, I would love to kick it um, over to you to start and kind of provide us with a foundation for today's conversation. SRR took six years to come to fruition, and historically there hasn't been much dis discussed about the many slave rebellions that took place as a result of slavery, particularly when you think about how slavery is taught in, in schools. Why do you think that is, and was that part of your motivation for telling the story of the 1811 rebellion within a contemporary context? Well, I think that you know, this is a country that was founded on slavery and genocide, and down to this day, it's based on exploitation and oppression. I mean, actually, we can very much see with the recent non-indictment of the police who murdered Breonna Taylor, that this system is going to brutalize and kill people, and it's going to say, no, that's what we do. And so it was really important to look at both that history, but specifically look at the history of enslavement, a country that was founded on slavery, but from the perspective of the enslaved and their yearnings to be free. People don't look enough at the history of this country and the history of enslavement, but they, when they do, they rarely look at slave rebellions, which you can't understand American history if you don't understand slavery, and you can't understand slavery if you don't understand slave revolts. And so looking at the largest rebellion of enslaved people in the history of the United States, one that, as I said, could have changed world history. If this rebellion was successful and they seized all of Orleans territory and set up an African Republic in the new world, the conversations we're having today would be really different. I mean, America might not exist as we understand it. Westward expansion might not have happened. Um, enslaved people all over the lower South might've rebelled and said, we are not going to put up with or tolerate this anymore. So it's extremely important to, to look at this history and actually recenter the, the voices of people who had the most radical concept of freedom in North America, in the United States at the time. 
I mean, you know, people right now, when we look back at history, I mean, people are saying, oh, well, we need to get back to democracy. We need to get back to the vision of the founding fathers. Well, let's be honest, the founding fathers were enslavers. And the US Constitution was a document written by enslavers and friends of enslavers to define the legal and political framework for a society whose economy was rooted in slavery. Their concept of freedom was based on owning human beings. Charles Delans and Maria and Jessamine and, and Kimana and Cook, they saw that the only way they could be free is overthrowing the system of enslavement. And they set out to do just that. That was a profound vision. They wanted to do what people in, in Haiti did or what was Saint-Domingue and became Haiti through the Haitian Revolution. And they actually said they wanted to set up a society where enslavement would have been outlawed. That's a radical vision. That's a vision of freedom. That's something that should be studied. And so as far as looking at whether or not this is studied in school, if I were running a country that's based on exploitation, I wouldn't want people to know about the true history of people who fought against that. I wouldn't want people to know about the history, the proud history of people trying to be free, a radical, revolutionary, visionary history. And that's, I think, why it isn't taught. And we can actually see a lot of this playing out. The 1619 now um, you know, project of the New York Times, which the keynote speaker is the person who, who founded that, it's a brilliant project. What does the current president say? He's trying to ban school, ban funding from schools in the, in the California school districts, in LA in particular, that teach that, and instead wants to replace it with 1776 history, a history that, that is steeped in white supremacy. And so this question of contrasting visions of, of you know, what this history is, is really important to think about. And so this performance that I did, Slave Rebellion Reenactment, which was a community-engaged performance that involved hundreds of people marching in period costume to African drumming to, to basically embody the freedom and emancipation that was concentrated in this 1811 revolt. That is an artwork that brought in all sorts of people to raise these questions about both how people got free in the past and how people can get free today. Love that. And I'm glad you brought up 1619 um, uh, because we know that, you know, I think this is the one year anniversary, you know, it led to a lot of debate about, you know, the impact of slavery on America, which we all know is profound. Um, I'm, I'm curious because I want to go back to the, the narrative you, you, you know, created here. Why was it so important for you to reimagine this historical narrative of the German Coast Uprising of 1811 with a different ending? Well, there were two reasons that are very intertwined for that. One is that when looking at this history, you know, a lot of times people have focused on the brutality and the repression that was needed out. They look at the ending, which the rebellion was not successful in its aims of establishing an African Republic in the new world. And the colonialists, the, the French and American colonial oppressors, they were brutal and medieval in their repression. They were, they basically, tortured the people that rebelled or anybody they thought rebelled. And, you know, basically they cut off their heads and put their heads on pikes up and down the Mississippi for 60 miles and left bodies rotting at the gates of the city. It was, and th that, that horror does not even touch on what was really done. This, the repression was brutal and that's what slavery was. Um, and so people have focused on that and said, look, this is how terrible slavery was or how terrible white people are. And that's true, people should know that. But the story people don't know is the vision, the planning, the boldness, the determination, the courage of 
you know, the, the rebels that actually fought against enslavement, both in this particular rebellion, but others. And so it was extremely important to actually get the story right. What the fact that enslavers were brutal, that's not news. What is news is that people fought against enslavement all the time, whether it was people escaping individually, whether it was people escaping with assistance and you know, you know, being on the Underground Railroad, whether it was people escaping that were, were joining maroon societies, whether it was people that were trying to poison their enslavers or grind up glass and put it in the orange juice, whether it was people having rebellions of which there were over 250 documented cases of slave revolts of 10 or more people in the United States during its history. So there were resistance and rebellion all the time, and that's a story that's hidden and people need to actually understand. That's a far more interesting story. It's both true, but it's more interesting than, than you know, so-and-so got whipped so many times. Um, and so it, that was important. And then to, to both focus on the actual history, but also for its roots in the present, for how people can get free today, it was important not to just say, oh, well, people should like suffer in enslavement and know how brutal it was, but we need to have a vision of how people get free today. And that has, I mean, I think, again, you know, a lot to do with how we look at the, the rebellions and resistance that's happening in relation to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. You know, there's been a lot of focus and there needs to be even more focus on the brutality of, of Trump and all the, the, the National Guard and the people in, in, in um, Portland, Oregon, the, the you know, Department of Homeland Security and all that. But the story here is all the courageous people that are standing up and looking for how we get free and how do we end centuries of systemic white supremacy and, and systemic racism. And so this trying to have this different ending that actually centered people uh, sort of successfully getting to a cultural center and celebrating and lifting up the names of the rebels. That was really important so that we can actually think, how do we get free today and, and have that connection with this past, the actual true history of the past, but how does it get embodied and lived in the present? And how do we take that courage and boldness of vision and thinking from the past and apply that today? Love that. Love that. Thanks, Dred. Um Let's pivot a little bit. So I know that we are talking to uh, communicators um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about the communications aspect of this um, and, and then bring in some of our other panelists. Um, so our, my team from Fenton joined in, in last August, I think, and it was toward the, the end of the production process. Um, and our charge was to really develop messaging and strategy and communications materials to really uplift the good work that had already, already been done. Um, and, you know, language was really important. For example, you know, we always try to say uh, enslave instead of slave because slavery is something that was done to others. It wasn't a choice, right? And we held a press conference and we, you know, we, did, we set up makeshift press tables at key points along the 26 mile route um, to assist press. Um, and I think it's really important to remember that this was a moving artwork. So there was no real base, no home base, right? And the media had to kind of move with us on foot and by car. Um, some days it was really cold. Uh, donuts helped, but it, it, wasn't the, <laughs> it wasn't the full problem solver. Um, but I, I say this just to share that everyone was sort of in the trenches with us, including media, right? I think it's important to, to keep in mind because it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an unusual um, uh, event. Um, and we had to get creative and play things by ear at times to arrange on-site media interviews for you, Dredd, who was not only sort of organizing it, but also performing in it. Um, and, you know, thanks to a great team, you know, with some additions like Ira Silverberg, hey Ira, not sure if you're tuning in right now, 
um, you know, we, we were able to get some traction. And I think it's fair to say media was slow going at first and then ramped up over time. Weird, right? With multiple spokespeople for one story. Uh, and folks were in different parts of the world, you know, at, at different uh, uh, points in time throughout our engagement. So it was a really fascinating project to really be ingrained and in, in working on. Um, and, you know, we did get some good uh, traction in the AP and New York Times and The Guardian, Times-Picayune. Uh, and we were really trying to cover all facets of the media from, you know, from art to, to philanthropy to race and equity. Uh, there were so many different angles that this artwork really um, uh, uh, opened us up to. Um, digital storytelling was also an important part uh, with the graphics and toolkits. But what I really want to spend a little bit more time on and bring Shana in on is this, uh, what was really important to you, Dred, you made very clear from the beginning, um, and that, you know, with Antana's support, you know, what we really wanted to try to capture were the local voices. We wanted to make sure there was intentionality around um, people who live in Louisiana being a part of this process, um, from organizers to drummers to historians. And it was part of our job to make sure those voices were included in the storytelling that was happening. And so that brings me to you, Shana. Um, as you know, place is very powerful. I mean, the original rebellion happened 200 years ago in Louisiana. So many people walking around the state today may not even know much about this. Um, and as Dred, I think, mentioned it in the video earlier, there was a, only a plaque commemorating this milestone. Um, and I know New Orleans has a very interesting and deep connection to the slave trade. I'm curious to hear why were local voices and engagement critical to the storytelling for this artwork? And how do you think this story has impacted the local community there? Thanks, Daria. And um, um, thanks everyone for joining and also allowing me the opportunity to share some thoughts related to the questions you just outlined. First, I wanna say and confirm, yes, place and location are very powerful particularly when we think about place as a historical, a racial, geographic, a social, and economic positionality marker, influencing past, present, and future experiences of displacement, bondage, confinement, and disposability during slavery and in its afterlife. The power of place exists in contradictory ways, from being seen as out of place or occupying too much space are being in a wrong place, as well as when we think about creating space and changing space and reimagining what it means to take up space for transformative social change. For the purposes of this conversation, I think it's really important um, as we're thinking of the, important, um, the importance of engaging local residents. Um, the, yes, for this conversation, um, it goes beyond to just engaging local residents because it was local residents that made the story itself possible. Right. And I wanna emphasize um, the engagement of local residents, I would say it took place in three, like three areas. There are obviously more, but I wanna focus on three specific areas. Um, Cause we know for a fact, this project could not exist without the involvement of community leaders, local residents, artists, and activists, as well as the historic site upon which the reenactment itself took place. First, as it relates to place, I wanna emphasize the importance of New Orleans. New Orleans existed both on the lands of indigenous people, a site referred to by the Choctaw as Bubancha, meaning many languages spoken there, 
the indigenous people of this area were subjected to the violence of settler colonialism, genocide, forced migration, and land appropriation to make way for the formation of a colonial state and carceral landscape built on the bodies, flesh, and blood of African captives and their descendants. After the Haitian Revolution, which took place um, from 1791 to 1804, followed by the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the German Coast Uprising in 1811, and Louisiana's eventual statehood in 1812, the city of New Orleans became the largest slave trading post in North America, facilitating the movement of over a million people from the Upper South to the Lower South for the building of empire. The African burial grounds upon which the city of New Orleans stands and the surrounding cities in this area are built on the bones changes, are built of bones, chain separation, loss, social death, and resistance, which speaks to the brutality of chattel slavery, labor exploitation, reproductive control, fundability, and violence committed against Black people. The geographic shifts of forced migration and dislocation, land disposition, Jim and Jane Crow policies, and structures of confinement, segregation, and violence are the backdrop upon which racial and gender violence occur and is perpetuated daily within the flag geographies that make up New Orleans and the river parishes that this project center. This is why place is important. This is why the project could not move forward without the involvement and engagement of local residents. And it was through the local engagement of local residents and maintaining this history is how Dred Scott and others became aware of it. Second thing I wanna note, this project involved the leadership of community members who have worked for decades in keeping alive the history of 1811 rebellion. As Dred mentioned, there was a lot of intentionality behind suppressing um, this story, um, this history, um, those members of our community who kept this work alive, the awareness of this historic event worked alongside those who lived and worked near the original route of the revolt. Um, the efforts, you know, the efforts began years before the performance. Um, you know, the performance also worked closely with organizers of Hidden History, an organization that develops tours on a route and publishes the book On to New Orleans that was featured in the opening video. Um, On to New Orleans is the most comprehensive book detailing the history of the rebellion. Additionally, um, anchoring the significant outreach efforts in New Orleans, Laplace and Reserve Louisiana was critical in engaging community members to become reenactors in the performance. Many of whom um, included ministers as well as their parishioners local politicians, artists, activists, and those wanting to walk in the footsteps of our ancestors. Um, all of this work that I just named was made possible by the organizing efforts of our outreach coordinator, um, Karen um, Kaia Levers, um, who worked in the trenches in the river parishes, as well as um, building relationships with our full outreach team here in the city of New Orleans. The third thing I wanna to stress too, as it relates to community engagement, um, we learned a lot. <laughs> we learned a lot about developing and presenting community engaged art, particularly as it relates to both supporting and sustaining the involvement of local residents, as well as interrogating assumptions about timelines and strategies outlined um, 
and how those strategies that we identified look once it was operationalized on the ground, as well as the importance of responding to and incorporating feedback um, about on the project and how that feedback and our strategies and, and commitment to incorporating that often ran in conflict with the production goals itself. And so we experienced some great successes in navigating those tensions, and we also fell short uh, on others. And so I think when we're talking about community-engaged art, the importance of engaging local communities, um, it necessitates us to acknowledge that the work that we're doing could not exist about, without the communities upon which the artwork is taking place. You're on mute, Daria. Thank you. It was bound to happen at least once, right? Um, thank you, Shana. Um, it's, it's a good, really, really good overview of the local community engagement. Um, Javier, let's come over to you. Uh, you know, as a director of Thriving Cultures at CERTNA, you oversee a $9 million grant-making portfolio seeking to advance the foundation's social justice mission. Why? fund such a project like SRR? And what was it about this project that resonated for you? And, and what does success look like for uh, a large scale project um, when we look into the future uh, at you know, other projects that may look like this? Um, so first, thank you, Daria. I just really appreciate you organizing this conversation and was always really excited to be a part of this process when Dredd invited us uh, to join. Uh, I'll say I work for CERDNA, that is, uh, CERDNA Foundation is a 103-year-old social justice foundation that is still governed by the fourth and fifth generation of the family. Uh, shameless plug to our amazing director of communications, Elizabeth Cahill, who's with us today in the room virtually. Uh, when it comes to why we chose to fund this, there are three primary reasons. Um, first, I think central to the, the programmatic and grant-making work that we're doing is a fundamental belief that part of philanthropic work is just reparations. It's just about giving money to black leadership to try, learn, and do more. Um, and Dredd is somebody with a huge track record of critical thinking and uh, incredible public artwork that can not only shine a light on an issue, which is great and useful, but really compel people to take action afterwards, which is important for the work that we're doing at CERDA. Uh, another reason that was really important for us to participate is that this grounded us in our authentic history that did not require a white gaze or a white perspective in order to narrate it. You know, I really appreciated the time that Shana just took to sort of ground us in all of the complex history that, that uh, this slave revolt took place within, uh, both what it originally happened and what is taking place now in New Orleans uh, many years later. So that work and ensuring that the artwork that gets created and gets recognized by the public that's about the history of Black uh, communities and African-American communities in this country should be done through Black voices, uh, without a white filter and without a white gaze. Finally, the thriving culture strategy that's part of the work that CERDNA does to build just and sustainable communities um, really believes that we're at a time where we have to get clear in our social justice movements about not just what we're against, but what we're for and what we believe in. 
And in that, really think critically about what are we offering? What are the solutions? What are the changes that we might offer when there are calls to abolish the police and to defund police? So in this particular case, as you know, a Puerto Rican man living in New York City in 2020 or in 2019 you know, when Dredd and I first engaged around this, um, I had to say, wow, right now I have a hard time thinking through what's on the other side of racial injustice in the US. But if there were human beings that who were enslaved, who could imagine a future beyond their forced enslavement, then we need to do a better job now of believing that something is possible and taking action. And that finally was a really important point for us to think about what is the, um, What is the beacon that we're sharing with the world with social justice movements? And how are we not just animating stories about black and brown communities that, forgive the, the terminology, show up as trauma porn, um, but in fact are about the richness, the strength, the intellect, the skill, and the strategy that has existed in these communities since their founding? Yeah. Love that. Uh, Dredd, Shana, would you like to add anything else on to that before we pivot to our last question? Oh, I wasn't planning on, but I could say so. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. So, um, thank you, Javier, for breaking those three points down. I think it's really in, um, imperative. One is it relates to um, being clear about the role of philanthropy. You know, one, we can't invest all of our aids in So this one basket thing of philanthropy is going to save the day. The same is true with art. Yes, yet at the same time, both philanthropy and our artistic practices have a role to play in systemic change and creating that awareness that is needed. And so, uh, one, we can't let our, you know, we can't let local officials and the government off the hook, while at the same time, we have to commit ourselves to engaging in very creative ways, um, engaging in strategies um, that reflect um, not what we, what, just what we're challenging, challenging, but reflect what we want and being inspired. You know, Drea, you spoke earlier, putting a big emphasis on freedom. And I think, you know, I think a lot, and we had these conversations about um, women um, uh, uh, leaders of slave rebellions and even um, women leaders of escape, like Harry Tubman, and thinking about the role she played in the, in a book and taking rest, but also in a, being in a dreamlike space and how she was able to see a pathway forward a pathway of freedom forward. And I think, you know, putting the shift, not just on people being confined and held in bondage, but also engaging their dreams of freedom. And, and, and not just the freedom from shackles, but freedom as it relates to imagining the social conditions that are necessary to be sustained. And so I think about philanthropy and how the importance, and I'm saying we, because I've done this work in the past, um, giving you some company, Javier, is that we have to think about what is that long-term investment and then both an investment in people and places as well as institutions and not be afraid of the mistakes that we may make along the way because we're going to make mistakes we can't pretend that we won't but how are we taking those lessons and incorporating them and i see that through this project that mentions some of those tensions some of those rewards the beauty but also we can't pretend but, it, but we also have to how do we take it and learn and keep moving Yeah, do you want to jump in? Just really briefly, I mean, I just really want to back up and, and say thank you to, well, all of you, but you know, Shana and Javier, of what you said, I really agree and want to sort of, you know, highlight that. And I, I wanted to also 
lift up what a reenactor said, sort of when they were asked afterwards, well, you know, what did you think? And there, we, you know, we tried to get people's opinion. And he said, well, I got to embody somebody who most people might not know even existed. And I think that question of knowing your past in order to, to change the future is really important. This thing of, if you can't dream, you know, looking back at people who had this whole vision for running society in a completely different rate, changing the economy at the time to, to create the basis for freedom for them, but also future people, that is really important. And, and when, when a reenactor who's you know, gone through this work, gone through this project, has been working on it for weeks or months or maybe even years, and says, look, I was able to embody somebody that other people don't know exists, it is actually saying that there is this thing in the past which we can look at in a whole different way that can teach us about how we live in the present and what that means for freedom in the future. And then really having a grasp of that, being able to envision that, as, as, as Shana was talking about, you know, looking at, at you know, women leaders, but in, in specific Harriet Tubman, that actually became operative to getting other people free. And I think that that has a lot for how we look at this past, but how we look at our present right now. And we are in some, you know, there are, the stakes are very high right now. Yes. And, and we need art, we need philanthropy, and we need activism, and we need it all to work sort of synergistically. But this question of imagining a future and fighting for it is something that I think, you know, that was at the heart of the piece, but that people are, are bringing out in the, in the various ways and talking about this. And I, I just wanted to, to center that. So thanks. No, that, that's great. And it's a good uh, sort of uh, segue into our, our sort of last question before we start taking questions. Um, SRR took place last November, um, but we all know the fight for justice, the fight for freedom, started long before, um, you know, and since then, the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Jacob Blake has led to sort of new protests against racial injustice, which I want to be clear has always been there, right? Um, and, but these protests, are, you know, uh, this new movement against racial injustice and against police violence, this sort of reinvigorating of the Black Lives Matter movement, forcing America to really grapple with the narrative of what it means to be Black in America today, right? And we're, we're also struggling with, you know, yesterday's grand jury decision um, connected to, to Breonna Taylor. I know many people on my feed um, uh, are angry and frustrated and rightfully so. Um, and we're also grappling with this upcoming election and, and you know, random executive orders uh, uh, on racial and gender stereotyping and, and, and God knows other things as well. And, you know, folks, there's so many, so much happening right now. So much happening right now. I wanna jump into this question around, what does a reenactment of a slave rebellion mean today? And you all have already started touching on this. What lessons can be derived from that milestone in history? So let's open it up again. You know, Javier, I'm happy to kick it over to you. I think uh, I have to say that this reenactment came just at the right time. Um, I don't know that I could say uh, that it didn't. I think that, um, you know, one of the 
the questions I land with is, okay, so what happens next? We did this, we memorialize it, we talk about it. Um, and I think what's really clear for me, we as, uh, as a team of Thriving Cultures at CERDNA invited 11 organizations who are doing national regranting across the country for this kind of radical prototyping to imagine a racially just future. Um, so we had over 100 people that we brought for a three-day uh, forum, but everybody came to this reenactment. So this wasn't just about who happened to be present. I also personally know three artists who came from across the country, one who came from Oakland, one that even came from Boston, to just be able to be part of this process um, that have fundamentally, A, filled them with vigor and strength, um, connected them to their history, and really reminded us about the combination of A, showing up in physical space matters, our voices matter. And B, that's not the only work. The amount of strategy and organizing and conversation and relationship building that happened before and after the slave rebellion is also essential to our sort of collective liberation. So it's that, those are the reasons why I think right now it's really important um, because it can not only inspire folks to understand that their presence in space matters, uh, but that we have to be thoughtful. We have to be critical, build relationships and develop strategy. Love it, thank you. Shana, you wanna get in here? You're on mute. <laughs> thank you. First, I wanna, um, I wanna just say and emphasize why we don't wanna assume that slave rebellions are not happening right now. That is really key and important. Slavery still exists, as well as its afterlife, specifically as it relates to what Saidiya Hartman refers to, or what I'm gonna describe how her analysis around the enduring presence of slavery's racialized violence that is still present today. Whether we're talking about prisons, whether we're talking about premature debt, um, interactions with law enforcement, substandard housing, poor health outcomes, it's all there. Two, I think it's important that we recognize that um, because slavery is ever present, that our organizing and our artistic practices necessitates a, a politic and a practice of abolition. You know, there was this guy, this white man, a, a segregationist um, in Alabama who says segregation now, you know, segregation forever. I'm saying abolition then, abolition now, and abolition forever. So we don't allow practices of slavery to reemerge in the societies that we want to create. And so whether it's about the, you know, we have to think about abolition, that politic and that practice of abolition, and how it needs to shape our um, political, this current political moment, whether we're talking about the calls for defunding the police, I will add to disarming and divesting from policing, as well as interrogating our current approaches of what public safety means, um, to racial and gender means racial and gender equity in the arts. There have been lots of call outs occurring across the country, both within the arts field, as well as with other sectors and fields um, as well. And, and also including, you know, when we think about like housing rights and um, uh, affordability, um, climate justice, economic secure, security and sustainable livelihoods, education equity, prison abolition, just to name a few. Um, what does it mean today? What is what is what it meant before? Is present? Is afterlife? Is after present? Ever present? We feel it all the time. And so the reenactment that took place. 
um, last November, I would say, and Dred, I'm curious what your thoughts are, if we were to do it again, not that we are, um, I think the response and the involvement and engagement will be 10 times more. To this day, you know, through the website, we still receive emails from people all the time asking if they can join um, or when is the next one. And so I do think that um, the impact, the engagement, um, people see it and feel it. And, and also really challenging the ways there are more than one way of engaging a protest. This performance was one, people taking it to the streets is another, folks who are engaged in electoral politics, and then also are reimagining um, and building institutions that are needed for when a revolution is successful. Amen. Thanks, Shane. Adrian, you wanna get in here? Yeah, just briefly. Um, you know, I think one of the, the lessons that's really important to learn from 1811 was that Planning slave rebellions is hard. It, enduring enslavement is hard, but it's easier to endure and suffer than, than planning a slave rebellion to overthrow a system of enslavement. Escaping from slavery as an individual is hard, but it's still easier than planning to overthrow the system of enslavement. Escaping with a group of people and forming a maroon society is hard, but it's still easier than overthrowing the system of enslavement. It might not have seemed possible to overthrow the system of enslavement in 1811, but the visionary people that launched the rebellion said, this is the only thing that will actually solve the problem we have. The problem is that we're enslaved. The solution is to end the system of enslavement. Let's figure out how to do that. And that method, that looking at and soberly confronting the problem and then going for the solution is something that I think is really important for people today. And right now, people are confronting that, guess what? It's really hard to abolish the police, but that's what's necessary if people are going to be just, have justice. It's really hard to get rid of a, an entire system of capitalism and imperialism, but that's what's needed if we're going to actually really be free. And so we need to draw on this past of people who said, we don't want the easy solutions, we need the actual solutions. And that's, I think, what people who came to be part of this project kind of were walking in and grappling with as we figured out how to do this artwork. And the other thing is that I know that a lot of, you know, and, you know, this project was an, happened to be a harbinger of the present. The rebellions that are happening in response to George Floyd and everything after that, I mean, that's one of the most beautiful things that I've seen in my life. I mean, the resistance that's happening, and people have, you know, people resisted in Detroit in 1967. They resisted when Martin Luther King was killed in 1968. They resisted, you know, prior, there had been definite resistance in the, but, but frankly, for, you know, since 1969 or 70, the resistance has been actually waning and people finally are stepping up all over the country in beautiful ways. And this question of do we go for our wildest dreams and figure that out, or do we get channeled into something just say voting? I think it's really important that people vote, but I also think that, that if all we limit ourselves to is if we can only get Biden in and then everything is good, that's not what we're talking about. That's not abolition of either 
the police. It's not defunding the police. It's not abolitioning the, the prisons and all everything that that's rested upon. And it's not certainly getting more just society that doesn't have exploitation in its roots. And so, you know, I think that the, some of the lessons in this reenacting a slave rebellion are actually dreaming what freedom really is and see, keeping your eyes set on that and then figuring out how through performance art to, to embody and internalize that more and think through some of that, and then have hundreds of people that participated that are ambassadors for freedom in this way. And so that's kind of, I think, what it means today. And I'll stop talking and hopefully we can get to some audience questions. No, um, love that, Dred. Yes, so we do have a couple of uh, questions in here. Uh, the first is coming from Kate Shatskin. Um, what do you think has changed as a result of the reenactment? And how have you measured that? And Dred, you know, I was thinking back to like the, the project in our, in our wrap up, but I'm curious, uh, what's your take on that? And Shana, from a local perspective, anything else you wanna add? Um, and Javier, feel free to jump in here too. Anyone want to want to start us? Yeah. Start off? I mean, I, I mean, I'd love to hear Shana actually talk about sort of the local response because I'm not from New Orleans. I spent a lot of time there, but Shana is, you know, living much more in proximity to the aftermath. And I mean, I do know through conversations I've had with some of the reenactors, including specifically Karen Kaya Livers, but also um, uh, Gianna Shershery, that some of the struggle around COVID-19 and the, the petrochemical plants and in Cancer Alley, which this reenactment took place through the, one of those toxic areas of the United States, and that is Cancer Alley. Um, and that mapped very directly to one of the highest rates of COVID death um, because it causes the, the, the cancers, the, the air is toxic and people have high respiratory distress in that area already <laughs> plays on. And so people were, were doing various forms of both abolition work, but fighting against sort of the, these petrochemical plants, which were killing people and exacerbating the effects, the effects of COVID. And so that, that some of the reverberations are people feeling emboldened in their capacity and having different and interesting networks that came out of working on slave rebellion reenactment. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But I'd love to know, you know, sort of what Shana's well, and then the one other thing I'll say is the measurement. I th it's important to try and understand when you do art like this, what the effects are. But I think a lot of times the metrics that we use that come out of a lot of um, how institutions try and analyze things, which is more butts and seats or what legislation passed or something is the wrong metric for trying to understand work like this. The metric is more how people are changed and, 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 and that's hard to quantify. I mean, I, I, I can tell examples of like people that things that they've said, but that, that metric is, you know, is important to try and get a handle on, but it's, it's hard to actually be able to point to, well, so-and-so said this or so-and-so did this, therefore the project is, a not, is successful or not successful. Right, um, and I, I remember a picture we shared earlier had a bunch of school children out watching the procession go past that school building. So to your point, Dred, some of this may not live in, in metrics per se, but the impact it has, how, how students in particular may remember this and you know, how it may change their perspective or vantage point um, can be really powerful. Shana, Javier, you wanna jump in really quickly? I'm sorry, I missed part of the question side in terms of my understanding and how to effectively respond. I will say, I think this project offers opportunities for thinking about various engagement points 
both as we think about this as a public history project, but also as a project of engaging people to make change. And so what does it mean to engage the history from reading the text? It's a different type of engagement from actually being part of a live performance, as well as an engagement of for the reenactors to walk past those um, petrochemical um, plants, those power plants um, that was once plantations that are now um, part of what Dre mentioned in terms of Cancer Alley, um, or what was called like River Roller, like the plantation capital of the country. And so I think the project offered many opportunities for thinking about different engagement points and how you can activate folks. There was many reenactors who was excited to participate, but found themselves being politicized by the actual walking along that route for hours um, over the course of those two days. And so I think there, uh, and so how do you measure that? Uh, you know, there are different ways, some ways in which Brett mentioned has been critiqued. And then there are also ways in, ter in terms of measuring by awareness. Um, clearly, you could think about media, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, documentation, but also for me, most importantly, the conversations, how this project created more conversations and, and allowed us to reimagine um, and to think, think differently about some of our assumptions and, you know, think about what we think we know, what we thought we knew, right? And so I think what took place, um, you know, both here locally, you know, every place is a local place, right? Anyone that leaves their local area becomes a national person. So I think it's really important that what took place here had implications for um, slavery and challenging different forms of racialized violence everywhere and, and created some inspiration for how people can engage and mobilize through art. I know we only have a, a couple of minutes left, but I want to get to this question because I think it's a really positive question to, to end on. So Nikki from the Council on Foundations asks the question, um, do you have any perspective on how we encourage and inspire other organizations to take the same approach? I'd love to jump in here on a quick, um, you know, to, to offer two quick points on the last question, which is, you know, we look at science and we understand that it's going to take us a year and a half to develop a, a COVID-19 vaccine. But we think that we pay, 50, you know, five to $10,000, and this is, you know, a made-up number for a performance, and somehow there's magical impact that we should be able to measure at the end. I'm not sure why philanthropy does that because it's unrealistic. Now, I do think that we need to get better at looking at measuring the qualitative attitudinal changes. Um, and, and those are things that are softer and qualitative and more human. Um, and that's much of what I think Dredd and Shane are talking about. As it relates to getting others to take, these, take on these approaches, uh, you know, the fact that Dredd's got publicity, and that's thanks to Dredd's work, Daria's work, Shana's work, um, helps others understand what's possible. From a philanthropic perspective, Nikki, I would say, you know, being able, of course, to host panels where we can have these conversations um, and thinking about how we share some of the program designs, both from a performance perspective for, our, for Dread, from a production perspective from Shana, and from a philanthropic perspective from me, and not forgetting from a communication strategy perspective from Daria, um, that all of those components uh, can be on display in conferences, in webinars, in reports, um, and continuing to support it in order for other organizations to pick this up and to learn more. Love that. Dred, Shana? 
I would just add, you know, a willingness to take creative risk, you know, um, both whether that's funding, whether that's through artistic practices, and also with understanding that you may be investing in supporting a project and it may not work. But that's not the that's that's not the end goal, that's not the success. A lot of times it's the process in, in and of itself. And so that willingness to take a leap of faith, um, go against the grain, um, and, 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 and be consistent. Like you started us off with, Dara, this project was six years in the making, right? Um, Dread didn't give up, things had to be changed, adapted, modified, and you know, had to keep going. So that willingness to take risks, I think, is really important and key. Yeah, and just on that, I mean, we got lucky. I mean, we did everything we could right, but we we did get some luck in there. And if things had, you know, even if something as simple, if the temperature had dropped 10 degrees, the performance would have radically changed. People wouldn't have shown up and those that showed up wouldn't have been able to do it if it had rained heavily, you know, and then there were other lucky things that worked our way. Had we not raised the money say, and, and said, well, okay, we're gonna do this November, 2020, well, guess what? This project wouldn't be happening. I mean, we couldn't have planned on COVID. So I think that thing that Shana said of take risks, you do have to take risks. Nothing, nothing in this life is worth doing if it ain't worth, if it doesn't involve risk. And the other thing and how to get other people involved, I would say, you know, well, not to pretend that there weren't shortcomings of this project, I would say, look at Slave Rebellion reenactment. There's a lot of lessons here, as Javier pointed out, but I, I do think just look at this project in, in the, the complexity and, 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 and you know, of, of all the levels of it that, that people can say, yes, this is not to reproduce more Slave Rebellion reenactments, but more the, the means by which this was done can actually, looking at this can and enable people to open up space to do things like this. Um, so anyway, and thanks everybody. Thanks Daria for convening this and thanks Javier and Shana for being here and, and uh, thanks the communication network for wanting to host this and thank you all for, for uh, listening to us for an, for an hour. <laughs> you wrap this up. Thank you, Dred. Thanks everybody. Thank you for joining us. Go to www.slave-revolt.com to learn more and feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to connect you with any of the panelists here today. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Right. Thank you.